Hello, all, and welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, your weekly look at the IT news of the week. I'm your host, Rich Straffolino. I'm an editor at Gestalt IT. Joining me from across this great nation of ours is the one, the only, the networking nerd himself, Tom Hollingsworth. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, Rich. It's good to see you again on this fine blurs day on the <laughs> 847th of March. Uh, in the uh, in the third era of man, uh, as we like to say. Uh, so let's get it started, I think, today, talking about the IT news with a little something we like to call news or not. This is where just too many news stories to go into a full discussion detail, but we want to touch on them, read the headline, and maybe get Tom's reaction to these. So let's get it started. Uh, familiar story here. Google didn't cancel a product, but they did rebrand a messaging service. That's right. Hangouts Meet is now rebranded as Google Meet. The company confirmed to The Verge. Google made it official in a Google uh, Cloud blog post on uh, Wednesday, so about a week ago now, uh, listing a number of privacy measures with Google Meet uh, to keep uh, remote meetings secure. So kind of uh, trying not to be zoomed in the process. It means an independent part of G Suite and Google says usage is up 25 times what it was back in January, which means that there's at least 25 people using it now and gaining more than 2 million new users per day, snark in ending parentheses. Google also said it will further extend free access to some advanced Google Meet features from July 1st through September 30th. A number of companies are doing this kind of opening up the lowest paid tier or the next round of features up uh, for paying customers and stuff like that. So Tom, Hangouts meet now, Google meet, news or not? Not really news, although I now know that we're in a new year of blurs days because <laughs> once again, Google has decided to rename a messaging platform. I mean, you have to wonder what's going on back there. They leak memos that say they're going to kill Google Cloud. They're thinking about hiring the guy who created Killed by Google. The only reason I can think of is to shut him up. But yet I feel like this is rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. They think by changing the name of this app, it's going to make it any more relevant for the rest of the 20th edition of Blur's Day. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it seems uh, like if um, Google canceling a product is the Memorial Day of the IT calendar in, in, in our new era, I guess this would, you know, Google rebranding a messaging service is the Labor Day equivalent. Uh, next up here, Microsoft released test build 19603 of Windows 10 to insiders that integrates the Windows subsystem for Linux into File Explorer. Users can select the Linux icon kind of the navigation pane and select any install distribution from there you can navigate your root directory right from file explorer not a obviously the windows subsystem for linux not new the ability to access your file system you have to go through a command line or something like that integrating into file explorer news or not tom uh, i would say it's news just because windows has finally figured out how to integrate with other file systems that are free and open source i mean <laughs> it's not like ext4 hasn't been around since the beginning of time i'm just glad they got this in before build 24601 because i'd hate to, for people to think that linux was a prisoner of of uh <laughs> yeah or uh, uh windows 351 which is uh where they're all destroyed by the borg uh next up here an interesting story coming uh from one of the biggest carriers out there, Verizon, uh, created the Cord Nine, uh, created Cord Nineteen, a coronavirus academic research and en search engine. Excuse me, Cord Nineteen uses the open source big data framework Vespa to combine text and structured search with semantic similarity using a machine learning model trained for uh, searching science scientific text. So a lot of more specialized terms there the algorithm will be familiar with. It pulls from the COVID-19 open research data set and is updated weekly from peer-reviewed publications and archival services. Tom, taking ad tech and using it for something good, news or not? News, 
but only because someone finally did something useful with technology that was designed to ruin our lives. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I feel like that this is the, the um, technology equivalent of sinking an aircraft carrier off the coast of a country to make a new coral reef. It's like you could have done this all along and you chose to do something else with it that was more useful for what you wanted to do. I just uh, kudos to you for doing the right thing. Not kudos to you for taking a global pandemic to do it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the one encouraging thing is, you know, we've we've seen like this on the engineering level where we have like Tesla, like using Model 3 parts to make ventilators and stuff like that, or at least prototype them. And it's just interesting to see like, every, all right, what do we do well? All right, we like organize information and know how to search it. I mean, Google's obviously having a number of efforts with that, but interesting to see Verizon as well. Speaking of Google, uh, again, they announced a new tool called TensorFlow Light Model Maker, which sounds like maybe a switch game. This allows organizations to use an API to train machine learning models with just a few lines of code, providing an easier path to deploy those AI models on device. And that's kind of uh, the big thing they were saying. Uh, previously, organizations were saying they were saying nine to 12 month lead times just to get one model on a single device. Currently, Model Maker uh, can work on image and text data sets and export human readable metadata with results to check how the model is performing. So you can actually see, like, uh, get a little insight as to why, you know, the, the model uh, gave you a specific output based on an input, stuff like that. Google plans to add object detection and natural language processing in the future. Easier on-device AI models. News or not, Tom? This isn't news because we're we're seeing a lot of this AI advancement, not because AI is an exciting and wonderful field that people want to get into. Um, it's because venture capitalists won't fund you if you don't do something new <laughs> and novel. So this is basically chasing dollars. All right. And finally here, uh, I guess not speaking of dollars, but Zoom announced that as of April 18th, paying customers will be able to choose which data centers route their Zoom calls. Users will be able to opt in or out of regions outside of their default region that they're in. You have to, you know, kind of route from where you are from at some point. Free users won't be able to set regions, but Zoom is committed that non-China-based calls will not be routed through China. This comes as Zoom disclosed earlier this month that some Zoom calls were actually routed through China that didn't originate in the country. As a reminder, Zoom uses transmission encryption, not end-to-end -end encryption on calls. So Tom, news or not on uh, opt-in, opt-out of routing? I think it's news because this is something that we really haven't seen before out of the other platforms. I don't think Cisco and Microsoft allow you to choose where your calls are routed. Um, the other bit of news is, oh, you can get this if you want, but you need to pay for it. For those of you who are not paying for it, we're going to send your calls anywhere we can to make money off of you. We encrypt all the things. Uh, next yeah. up uh, for our first discussion, uh, kind of big news in the world of events, obviously. Um, not surprising to hear that something like VMworld US um, has been you know, turned into a virtual event. But uh, VMware has announced that both uh, VMworld US and Europe would be canceled and transitioned into a digital VMworld 2020 event. So, you know, just really going out there and clearing out the calendar uh, for those physical events. The event will be held the week of September 28th, 2020. Right now, there's not a lot of information available from VMware, just kind of putting that announcement out there and kind of fielding all the questions as they're figuring this out, I'm sure. Their FAQ has questions about how sessions and networking will work uh, with responses essentially saying, yeah, this stinks. We're figuring it out. We'll let you know as we go along. Attendees uh, will still have to register for the event uh, and attending virtually will give you alumni credit. I saw that was in the FAQ. Some people might want to know about that. Sessions will also be available on demand in the VMware video library, but I believe that is behind some sort of paywall. Uh, we've seen smaller events figuring out what the age of virtual events means, but Tom, 
how do you translate a giant show like VMworld or giant shows like VMworld US, VMworld Europe into a virtual experience? So it's kind of funny because honestly, this was the last shoe that I was waiting for to drop. And when you look at it, Microsoft Ignite, Cisco Live US and VMworld US are all now virtual conferences. So the only conference left that hasn't officially declared their digital is uh, reInvent and it's not until December. So they've got a, a few more weeks. But you, when you think about what a conference is from a, from a content perspective, it's actually not that hard to do. Um, the real content, which is the sessions, can be recorded as you know on-demand videos and mm -hmm. re-released. And they do that quite frequently, which is how they sell subscriptions to the content on a year-round basis. Um, people would rather watch it in the middle of the day when they're they're not hungover or they're not anxiously awaiting going to get a beer in the expo hall. Now, <laughs> look at everything else that happens. Keynote addresses, meh. We can we can live cast those if we really wanted to. Um, World of Solutions Expo floor. Okay, so I'm not going to have a whole bunch of random fidget spinners and screaming flying monkeys in my house for the next year. I'm also not going to be getting a whole crap load of emails from companies for the next 12 months asking me, hey, we saw you stop by our booth. No, no, I didn't. <laughs> um, not for you. <laughs> now, there is a downside to this. I don't get to see my friends. I don't get to see the people that I love to hang out with at these events. That sucks. I, I mean, I'm I, I'm not gonna lie. I'm I'm really like I have uh, my heart hurts because I can't see my homies. I also can't give them an, a virus that could potentially put them in the emergency room or the the ICU. So I, I have to balance my my longing in my heart with the fact that I'm keeping their heart safe. So I don't really know how you can approach this. Now, here's what I think. Lots of questions are going to be asked when 2021 rolls around about, do we even need to have these big conferences again? The answer is probably going to be yes, but I think there's going to be a lot fewer people that are going. Um, the other thing, too, is, well, how do I put this mildly? I hope this teaches Moscone that they probably need to do better. And I hope this really guts the hotel industry in San Francisco and teaches them that maybe just maybe overcharging for a little ramshackle matchbox hobble is not <laughs> the key to staying in business. Yeah, if, it, if if what we get out of a coronavirus is that Moscone suddenly becomes the place nobody wants to send their conferences, I will consider this a win. Well, and on the networking side, you know, that's one of the the interesting things is, you know, just just in general outside of IT, outside of tech, that people have, you know, people have a need to be connected, whether an introvert or an extrovert. Like at some point, you need some sort of other human connection, especially if you're living alone. And there's been no end to the creativity that people have shown already to do that. And I have no doubt that with the engaged communities that are involved with the VMware ecosystem, the VMworld ecosystem, that we're not going to see, you know, uh, like VMUG groups and stuff like that, VBeard, stuff like that, getting to together and and using that event to do some further networking. I think um, we'll definitely see that now, how centrally organized that will be. I think VMware itself is probably trying to decide how to do that, hence why we don't have any announcements of that as of yet. Uh, but we will definitely see, definitely will be a, a different experience. But you're right, like all of that, the the content, the, the keynotes, I mean, personally, like I'm all for hearing from the CEO or the COO or whatever like that. I don't need to hear about like a mountain climber, about why like data has gravity and that's like somehow related and stuff like that. So um, I am, you know, I, I'm interested to see the creativity that people will bring to get the experience as close to what they, they need out of that event as possible. Yeah. 
All right, next up, IBM announced it will release a training course for the COBOL programming language. Hey, remember that? Uh, this week, I think it's already out, as well as set up a forum to match proficient programmers with organizations in need. The move comes as several U.S. states use COBOL-based systems for unemployment processing, along with tons of other legacy applications, uh, and have struggled to find expertise to update the systems to meet demand caused by the COVID-19 lockdown. Tom, obviously... I feel like IBM, as the maintainer of a lot of the systems that COBOL runs on, has a vested interest in doing this. But the idea of, you know, kind of having a one, having all this legacy code out there that people are depending on for kind of mission critical stuff. Um, surprised to see all of a sudden people realizing, hey, we need way more people to scale these systems a lot faster. So I will tell you that I'm actually not surprised by this, and I'll tell you why. Uh, hmm. I actually know COBOL. Really? I, I took the last COBOL programming class at the <laughs> University of Oklahoma back in 1999. Actually, no, it was in 2000. I take okay. that back. It was in 2000. Um, the professor, Dr. Jack Warner, was... Uh, it, it was called Intro to Programming. So I didn't know. And I already knew some programming languages. So I thought, hey, I'll just take a blow-off class. Yeah, imagine myself when I walk in and I have <laughs> how to program on a mainframe. Uh, it was enlightening. Uh, it was fun. It was it was hilarious to watch how they were teaching us how to upgrade prog programs and written in COBOL to support four-digit date format because Y2K was still a thing. But um, the other thing was next semester they made him start teaching C because nobody's going to know how to use COBOL. So I always find it funny because I knew that a lot of insurance companies used COBOL as uh, mm -hmm. like their actuarial tables and their mainframe still ran off of it. It's a lot like Fortran. It's a lot like uh, knowing how to um, repair a diesel engine. Um, you're not going to make millions of dollars as a COBOL programmer. And the jobs that you're competing for are very, very thin. Mm -hmm. But if you know your stuff, you can make bank because it's, it's like uh, Gandalf, basically. Um, if you need a wizard, you can't just go find one. You have to know a person. <laughs> and that's basically what COBOL programmers are. Now, there's a reason why these systems haven't been updated. And it all comes down to money. It's cheaper to hire the last COBOL programming wizard than it is to try to update this into Rust or Go or whatever the hell we're using this week. <laughs> I have no doubt that these will eventually be updated. In fact, I would bet within the next five years, a lot of these systems are going to be migrated or changed or something like that. But yeah, let me just tell you guys now, if you have a predilection for programming and you like the arcane dark arts, there's no better intersection of those two things than learning COBOL. The, you know, and, and for some context for the strain that these systems are under, you know, the, the, like I, I was reading some figures from the state of New York that said their their phone system itself had seen a 12 thousand percent increase in phone calls and the the uh, website had seen a 1200 percent increase uh in visitors so i mean i don't think there are very many systems set up to scale let alone something that's legacy and something like that and to you know again given the lack of of expertise that may be available you know to a given state or an organization you know because it isn't just states i mean states it's the most visible because you know unemployment is you know supremely important that affects people's lives very directly um, and, and, you know, uh, and, and so there's a, there's a huge priority on that, but I'm sure organizations all over the place are kind of now, uh, um, 
depending on how much scale they're they're hitting or how particularly hard they're getting hit, um, need to be able to do that. And it reminds me of the the tweet that was going around that says, uh, "Who's been the biggest driver of your digital transformation?" Uh, <laughs> CEO, CIO, or COVID? Um, and yeah. uh, I, I mean. You know, you we we I, we keep saying that nothing will you know nothing's going to go back to quote unquote normal, and this certainly will will drive a number of uh, digital transformation efforts. I'm sure. Yeah. All right. Next up, uh, GitHub CEO Matt Friedman announced that the company was making private repositories with unlimited collaborators available to all accounts, including free users. Previously, that had been a paid feature uh, with only open source um, uh, uh, re uh, repositories available for users. Advanced features like code owners, SAML, and personalized support will still require a paid plan, but that uh, paid plan is coming at cheaper with the entry-level team paid plan being reduced from $9 to $4 per user per month. GitHub is such a giant in the code hosting space that any change like this has the potential to have big industry impact. So, Tom, you know, we've seen open source over the last decade or more really beginning adoption uh, across the enterprise. We have, you know, basically every major enterprise has an open source team or an open source repository and and they're they're contributing you know like the biggest open source contributors are like microsoft and 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 companies like that uh that's been going on for years does github opening private repos for free potentially change that mm, yes it does it gives people an opportunity to collaborate more effectively without a huge investment and when you look mm -hmm. at the way that companies are doing this i mean can I do I spend six or eight or 12 months rolling my own code or do I go take somebody's code that's already been written and is freely available on the Internet and, you know, use it as a basis point for modifying stuff that I need to do? I mean, obviously, the second one's a whole lot easier. It's easier to retrofit than it is to roll your own. Mm -hmm. But the same thing applies to smaller organizations, too. So now if I can do private repos and I can do all the development without being in public, I mean, that's kind of a big deal when you think about it. I mean, I can get a small group together, you know, let's be fair. Um, we all know that one person working on something has a limit of how much time they can spend. And a mm -hmm. small group multiplies that. But past a certain point, when you get to a large group of people, you get into governance issues, you get into disagreements, you're eventually going to slog to a standstill because can agree on how to proceed. So small groups typically do a whole lot better about doing iteration and pushing things forward. And then they kind of toss it back over to the fence to the larger group. That's what this is effectively doing. I can take pieces, I can put them in a small private group, I can work on them, and then I can throw the results back over the fence and deal with it. Um, I like this methodology. Uh, it's not always practical because a little splinter group can do something that you maybe weren't intending <laughs> it may work out in the long run, but you got to you you got to roll the dice on that. But I like the idea of doing something rather than nothing. And I do wonder if this is a way for companies of all sizes maybe combat a little bit perceived or real uh, perception that you know Amazon's a big player and the open source player, but it's because they can come in and swap up features all of a sudden that you've been developing for years, and they have the resource to to run with those very quickly. I do wonder if that's a way, you know, um, Microsoft kind of recognizing it, obviously the, as the owner of GitHub, um, and maybe trying to, uh, you know, to to make that more enticing to users. I, I'm surprised, you know, I've I've seen that this put out here as like, uh, I haven't seen a ton of like negative, like oh how you know. It's a free feature. No one's going to be negative about that, obviously. Um, but I haven't seen, I thought there would be a little more hand-wringing of like what's, you know, since Microsoft owns GitHub, it, is is any of old Microsoft kind of getting in there? And it seems 
seems like everyone's kind of taking this as it's something free. We can use it as we want um, and not necessarily worrying about that right now. I thought that was an interesting reaction. Yeah, I do too. And and I would hope, honestly, and I, and I say this with all the love and soul in my heart, I hope that Nadella's Microsoft is the dominant Microsoft going forward and that all of those old jerks that believe that you needed to license every feature and cripple your competition and screw it if you don't want to play by my rules. I hope those people are all off to browner pastures full of death and disease. <laughs> All right. And finally here, um, Cisco announced a $2.5 billion financing program, letting customers defer up to 95% of payments through 2021. With the offer, customers would not owe anything for the first three months with the 1% uh, of the balance due for the remaining five months of 2020. So 1% each month for those five months. Financing will cover hardware, software, and services, as well as some partner fees, specifically uh, sales and installation were uh, mentioned in the sources I was reading. With everything rushing to use video conferencing and extended VPNs and uh, you know other kind of network needs that weren't foreseen, Cisco was certainly seeing increased demand and the financing uh, program probably hopes to ease concerns about financial instability, at least in the short term for a lot of these organizations. Could Cisco's financial size allow them to gain a little? I mean, Cisco's already a giant. They don't need to gain market share, but could this their financial might, I guess, in this situation um, really help them uh, stand out uh, from some of the startups that might be trying to, to you know, expand services in this market as well? So you have to look at this as, as a double pronged sword. Actually, you kind of have to look at it as a carrot and a stick. <laughs> Bravo to Chuck Robbins for understanding that part of what's going on is that people are under a credit crunch. If I don't have any inflow coming in, I don't have anything I want to send going out. Mm -hmm. And I'm already sending out a lot through salaries and rent payments and stuff like that. So a lot of this feels like, you know, things like mortgage forbearance and stuff like that. Hey, pay me when you can. And, and I've done this before when I was a VAR with schools. It's like, hey, we know you guys get a trickle of income over the next five years. So we'll pay you pay what you can. And then we'll talk about the bill that's due. Then it was a lot like a lease payment on a car. You, you technically lease the car for payments for two years, and then you have the option to buy what you've been leasing or trade it in and kind of continue those lease payments. Here's the problem as I see it. So we've talked repeatedly about how Chuck Robbins has taken Cisco in a different direction than John Chambers ever did. Mm -hmm. John is a hardware guy. John wants boxes in every data center in America, cloud or otherwise. Chuck is new enough to the game to realize that if it has blinky lights, you can't rely on it forever. The real value is in software and specifically in software subscription. So that means licensing and that means getting a recurring revenue stream for payments. Okay, great. Question for you. Leasing really makes sense when you have large CapEx, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to ship a lot of hardware from this. Hey, why don't you go ahead and buy a whole bunch of brand new Nexus switches? I know you've been kind of on the fence about redoing this catalyst, um, you know, equipment upgrade. Let's go ahead and do it. You can pay 1% until next year. And then the balance is due, give you enough time to get back on your feet and we can get everything running and it'll be great. And everything's under this plan. So, you know, you won't owe anything until 2021. Oh, hey, did we forget to mention that we gave you a whole bunch of switches that really only work right <laughs> if you have DNA Center installed on them and you have all of the software to find access stuff enabled and, oh, wow, 
here's your license bill for the rest of the you know next five years and you really want to pay this because if you don't we have to turn off all those features that you really really like i'm not implying that cisco is nefarious enough to do that but let's be fair there are a lot of salespeople in general who love to get people hooked on cool things and then, oh, by the way, if you want cool thing to work for the next 90 days, you need to pay us. And anytime you've ever done any kind of a free trial, you fell victim to this sales tactic. So I applaud Cisco for reducing in where it's present. If you were going to take advantage of this, caveat implementor. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean... I, I, I don't necessarily read anything nefarious into this, but it is clearly a strategy that's meant to play into Cisco's long-term business model. Like they're a for-profit company. Like this is what they, they, they don't do things because they're nice. They do things because it's in the, it's in the best interest for shareholder return at some point, right? It happens to be like, it turns out you can't make money if all of your customers are out of business and they can't do IT services. So you, there, there is a, uh, certainly there is a motive to keep people in business and keep people allowing to do this. I do think this could come in a lot of handy for companies where, you know, effectively your, you know, your VPN, your, your spend on VPN, your spend on teleconferencing and stuff like that was zero because you were all going, you know, you're like a large law firm or something like that. You used to all just going in the office and then going home, maybe you do some VPNs for like some of the lawyers. And then all of a sudden your thousand person workforce all needs to be on WebEx and secure calls and VPNs and stuff like that. Where yeah. what what I think is in the long-term interest of them is to get people like stood up on those kind of services. And then, oh, as companies, as, as work from home, all of a sudden is the new normal two, three, four, five years from now. Um, hey, they're already paying for that. They're used to paying for that. We help them out. So they're going to stick with us. I, I don't think that's nefarious. I think that's, you know, v or, uh, Cisco recognizing Cisco VMware, they're all trying to do this to a certain extent, I'm sure. Um, recognizing that the market is changing. The market is probably going to fundamentally change um, very profoundly in the in the next uh, couple of years and saying, okay, we're, we're not going to hose you and stop you from doing this. We're going to let you pay us subscriptions for a long time, but we're not going to make it a hassle for you right now. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And and it sounds bad when you say it because on <laughs> the what on the one hand you've got companies like Patagonia which are willing to fire customers and make a stand for what they believe in even if it costs them profits. And on the other hand, you've got shady used car salesmen that want to fleece their customers just because they want dollar dollar bills, y'all. Mm -hmm. The middle really is kind of a a spectrum. And you're right. Companies have to make money at the end of the day. That's how this works. How they choose to do it colors our perspective on what they do. I'm not faulting Cisco for this. They mm -hmm. are the 850-pound gorilla of networking, and their market share has eroded a little bit over the years as we've moved away from welded boxes to the data center racks to cloud computing and things like that. So bravo for trying to find something new. I hope this works for them, and I hope more people follow this model so that there's not as much emphasis on these kinds of things. But remember, this is also the same company that's willing to give you an AP for free because you're going to have to pay a license fee on it for the next five years. So great. Yeah. Salt. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, it, it, you know, there, there, there's always a listen they're like I said, for a private company and to, to Pat, the Patagonia example, um, there was, uh, you know, if Cisco was a B Corp, it would be a different situation where they have to have like some sort of social benefit. Don't think there's going to be a lot of B Corp <laughs> enterprise networking companies or any networking companies really, uh, just not set up that way. But Tom, 
the one thing that's a benefit to our audience is, of course, you. So thank you so much for joining the Gestalt IT Rundown. Where can people find more of your great stuff if they are so inclined? So you can head over to gestaltit.com. Uh, again, since it's the uh, the, the blurs day of Marchish, um, <laughs> I've, I've had a lot of time to write. And you are watching this on Wednesday the 15th, the former tax true. day. Stay tuned for some exciting new content headed your way. I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Yes. Uh, so be sure to subscribe to the Gestalt IT YouTube channel if you have not already done so if you're listening to us in the podcast feed just head on over to youtube i think it's youtube.com slash gestalt it videos you can find all of our fine stuff there and get uh alerts when hey we're gonna go live that's cool so you can join us live every wednesday at 12 30 p.m eastern time that's when we'll be back with another gestalt it rundown giving you the it news of the week in about 30 minutes or less so for myself for tom hollingsworth for all of us here in the gestalt it family here's wishing you and yours to have a super sparkly day.